Unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Thanks for downloading a special edition of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, this is Assistant Professor of English at Emmanuel College and the one with the thickest accent, according to the CWC folks, Nathan Gilmore. <laughs> uh, I'm joined this morning from an undisclosed location by Mr. David Grubbs. David, how are you doing and where are you doing? <laughs> um, well, I'm doing well and I'm in Charleston, South Carolina in the uh, in a hotel room in the Best Western Sweetgrass Inn on the Savannah Highway. I could be out by the pool, but I wouldn't be in control of noise levels there. There you go. Uh, also wet. joining us, I believe, from Tallahassee, though I could be wrong, is Mr. Michael Farmer. Michael, how are you doing? I'm still in Tallahassee, and I'm doing all right, given that fact. <laughs> and all the way from Los Angeles, our special host today and my brother, uh, Ryan Gilmore. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. All right. No, wait, 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 wait. I think all our listeners would like to hear some sort of embarrassing story about Nathan Gilmore. And also, uh, I want to know how come Ryan doesn't have the coal country accent. I, you know, I, I, I don't think either of us do, honestly. And I don't think Nathan and I sound anything alike, which is very suspicious <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what happened, honestly. Well, no, I will say that, I mean, you know, a, a, an ex-girlfriend of Ryan, who we will re- remain unnamed right now, said that uh, when Ryan and my dad and I get together, the longer we talk, the more Southern we start sounding. That's true. <laughs> That's true. And uh, the Nathan story, well, Nathan used to uh, pin me down a lot as a child, and uh, a lot, a notable amount. Uh, when we were wrestling because he was bigger than me and uh, the one time I finally got a move on him we were home alone and he pinned me on the couch and I got a nice like leg kick up and knocked him off of me and Nathan pretended on the ground like his leg was broken uh, and made me call our mother (laughs) so that even though I have won that victory he still won the psychological victory so Nathan is a dirty wrestler. Nathan Gilmore sadist. He's, it was awful. It's one of the worst you know, days. I, I don't remember I, that at all, but it's a real good story. It was, yeah. Lord knows I tried to block it out. <laughs> well, at any rate, uh, those of you who are readers of our blog know that we've been a little bit slow here in the last couple weeks. Uh, David has been the traveler. Uh, I've been doing the administrative part of my job, so I've been putting in just crazy hours. Uh, We do apologize, but since our last podcast, we have had a post on Walker Percy by Michael Farmer. We've had a lectionary post. Uh, We've had a brief reflection on tradition and innovation in theology. We are going to continue producing material on the blog. It'll be a little bit slower this summer, but keep reading. Uh, In the listener feedback department... We got an email from Jeremy Simonos, and Jeremy, if I've mispronounced your name, I, I, I think his apologize. first name is Jeremiah, isn't it? 
Oh, is it? Well, the the email he sent me refers to himself as Jeremy. When he posted on my a section of the website, it said Jeremiah. I thought maybe Jeremy is short for Jeremiah. Oh, okay. Well, I've, I've been exchanging emails with him. I'm sorry, and and he refers to himself as Jeremy in the email. So, Jeremy or Jeremiah, however you call yourself, <laughs> do let us know. Uh, at any rate, uh, he has listened to our first episode and enjoyed it. Uh, he asked for our recommendations for podcasts and also, uh, in a subsequent email, asked us what we're reading this summer. So, uh, I'll I'll go ahead and lead off with a podcast recommendation to give you guys a second to think about what you'd recommend and what you're reading. As far as podcasts go, it's not a Christian podcast necessarily, but probably the most unabashedly intellectual podcast out there and one that we use to a large extent as a model for ours is Entitled Opinions on Life and Literature from Stanford University. Uh, It is put on by a professor of Italian literature. He is not only unabashedly intellectual, but unabashedly arrogant. Uh, He's a wonderful (laughs) radio personality for that reason. Uh, But he talks about really, really interesting stuff. Uh, I can't think of too many of the shows that aren't worthwhile, even if some of them make me want to run my fingernails over a chalkboard. Now, as far as what I'm reading this summer, uh, first of all, I, I have pulled Dante off the shelf. I read the comedy in its entirety every summer, uh, Inferno, Purgatory, and Paradise. Uh, I'm also going to try this summer to take a look at the first uh, Rabbit Angstrom novel. Michael's finally got me convinced that I've missed the good stuff in John Updike, so I'm going to try out Rabbit Run. You'll, you'll uh, read that in a, in a day and a half, Nathan. Will I really? Okay. It, it's a quick read. Well, Michael, what what should Jeremy Jeremiah listen to, and what are you reading this summer? Well, he actually he actually posted the same question on my section of the podcast page, which I, I think right. we need to get rid of the um, comments, the comment sections on those because it's confusing. But we will. Um, I I said he should. I I plugged our friends at the CWC, of course, even though they're they're not really our format. Um, and I uh, there's there's a show I like about Christianity and the arts called The Kindling's Muse. It's out of the Pacific Northwest. I think part of them are from Seattle and part of them are from Vancouver. And um, that's a really good show that's almost always worthwhile. And it, it uh, tapes live actually in front of an audience in a, in a pub, I think. All right. And what are you reading this summer, Michael? Stuff from my comps, of course. I'm almost. I figured. Done with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, other than that, right now, uh, my anniversary was. Uh, last week, and my wife got me a book by Marion Montgomery called uh, With Walker Percy at the Tupperware Party. So I'm attempting to read that. It's not as good as I thought it would be. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm just doing comp stuff. Uh, and you'll, you'll, I'm sure you'll hear all about that in my blog posts. Certainly. All right, David, how about you? What do you listen to? What are you reading? Well, first, uh, congratulations, Michael. Uh, would have contacted you earlier, but we were on top of a mountain celebrating our anniversary. That, that's okay. I um I think it's weird to uh to send people things and to congratulate people on on their anniversaries. I, I think that's that's I, I'm lear- I'm learning that you're supposed to do that, and it strikes me as very strange. But uh, thank you, thank you anyway, David. Yeah, uh, doing a lot of reading uh, for dissertation stuff, um, so not going to talk about that, but it's a whole lot of ethnicity and history stuff. Anthony Smith, um, if anyone cares. Um, for fun, uh, I'm I'm taking on uh, something that has daunted me from a distance for a while, and that's the Persian national epic, uh, the Shahnameh, the Book of Kings. 
Um, and it's pretty daggum cool. Um, getting in a couple chapters a night before bed and it's, you know, just rigorous battles and heroes and monsters and all the kinds of stuff that I like, but from uh, a region of the world that uh, I know very little about. So that's neat. Um, in terms of podcasts, um, I'm, I'm going to play my, uh, uh, I'm the staunch Calvinist card and refer people to Christ the Center, <laughs> uh, the Reformed Forum, uh, I believe, dot .org uh, podcast. Yeah, um, th- those guys make you look like a Catholic, David. They, they yeah. really do. I know. <laughs> they, they, but, they make you look like Tony Jones. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. Well, but, you I know, don't so, even know what that means. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably for it the best. It sounds awful. <laughs> but more than that, I've been uh, listening to audiobooks from LibriVox, um, listening to Julian and Norwich and Bernard de Clairvaux and uh, old science fiction novels, and that's mostly what's on my MP3 player. All right. Well, Ryan, you're our guest host. What are you reading this summer? Um, right now, I, I just finished up uh, a play by Sarah Rule called Dead Man's Cell Phone. Um, it's, it's award-winning. It, it was recommended by a lot of people. Just a funny play. So if anybody's interested in reading uh, stage scripts that are funny, it's uh, Dead Man's Cell Phone. And then I'm starting back up on uh, Jim Harrison's The Farmer's Daughter, which I don't know if anybody's read Harrison, but uh, it's not nearly as uh, – it's not about Calvinism or anything, but it's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> if you guys want to take a break from all that. Uh, well, no, and I know Dad's going to be listening. I still haven't read Harrison, and I I know he's been recommending him to me since about 2005, yeah, and I just haven't to. gotten it's around good. to it. It's good stuff. I mean, it's it's yeah. I, I don't have anything else to say. And then uh, podcast wise, I'm enjoying Baseball Today by uh, ESPN. If anybody's interested in that, it's a uh, it's kind of a Christian take on what it means to play baseball these days. <laughs> Yeah, I listened to the football one in the fall with uh, with Jeremy Green. Yeah, I, you know they're well produced. They're short. They're nice. All right. Well, very good. Well, today's topic, because we've got our special guest host here, is stage comedy, stand up comedy, those sorts of things. Uh, Ryan, I want to lead lead off and give you a few minutes to talk, since you're the one of us with actual experience. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that experience? I mean, tell us the story of how you got into improv, how you've gotten into other things, uh, stage comedy related. Uh, how did you How did you end up on this path that you're walking? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, it started. Um, my original stage stuff. I used to drum. Um, I was a drummer for several bands uh, growing up and stuff, and. Um, it, it kind of culminated, I was with a, a drum and bugle corps out of Milwaukee, and when I got off the road with them, I was just kind of done with the whole thing. And I started improvising at Ball State University with a group called ABSO. And um, from there, you know, I, it was just kind of, it played into what I enjoyed doing and my skill set. So I, so I decided to pursue it further after uh, undergrad, and I moved to Chicago and did the whole, th- there's kind of like a cottage industry of alternative comedy 
in Chicago. So you go there and there's there's various schools and stages and um Chicago's very much about kind of doing your own thing, like putting on your own shows. So I got hooked up with like uh crazy faux Eastern European live game shows, which was called Don't Spit the Water, uh, that won several awards. That's when I started my character, uh, Mr. Gallops, the Talking Horse Comedian, uh, which if you YouTube that, you can find that. I made, spent several years as a talking horse. Um, and from there, um, I started working with Belmont Burlesque, which was, you know, the a type of show that had like magicians and comedians and puppeteers and dancers, that whole thing. And we kind of traveled around and, and did that whole thing. And um, I guess about two, two, three years ago, um, I made the decision to start moving into sort of a career mode because in Chicago the the economy for comedy isn't really strong enough to make a living doing it unless you get picked up by Second City in particular and there's like I would say probably about thousand I, I don't know exactly I almost picked a number out of the air I'm trying to use no swear words <laughs> mother for told doing me so. don't have <laughs> yeah my mom said no <laughs> <laughs> um so I, I, there's thousands of improvisers and only a handful of slots at Second City. So if you don't, if you're not on that trajectory, you're kind of behooved to either move to New York or L.A. to try to make a career out of what you're doing. So I, I came out to L.A. and, um, oh, I should probably say I started writing while I was in Chicago. They had a development deal with a, a, a website called .comedy.com which I believe has gone out of business now, but they uh, paid me to do the cartoon series Birds on Life, which is just two <laughs> birds sitting on a wire talking about uh, philosophy. And what's funny, I think you Also guys, available on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, this is on YouTube too. What's funny about this is I wrote it um, where one of the birds was just like, a simpleton and miss the point of the conversation. So the three episodes are politics, homosexuality, and uh, higher education. And one of the birds is, you know, just too basic to understand it. But then the other bird is so intellectual that he doesn't understand uh, the issue and he misses the point too. And everybody who hears it, it it's kind of like a litmus test for what kind of moron you are. <laughs> <laughs> If you don't catch that one of the birds is a moron, you know that that person is a moron when you're going into a meeting. It's nice. Um, <laughs> so um, what else? And then I came out to, to Los Angeles, and while I was here, i have been out here maybe four months when I found out that I was accepted to the University of Southern California uh, in their master's degree program in screenwriting. So I took the opportunity to hook up with USC, and I've been here for two years, and I have one more semester, and then I'll be graduating. And Very that's cool. the basic journey. There's there's a lot of mistakes and a lot of uh, setbacks and a lot of successes in there, but that's basically what happened. Well, I mean, one of the things I love, and I mean, if you can talk about this at length or as briefly as you want, but our... One of our cousins, who will remain unnamed, went out to visit you and sort of expected you to be living this John Belushi life in Chicago <laughs> yeah. and, and found out that actually the life of a working comedian is a day job, going to bed early, and doing 
stage shows. Which is funny because yeah, 90% of comedians go into stand-up comedy so they don't have to get up early. Oh, it's it's awful. I, I'm exhausted right now. I had a 10-hour day yesterday on a pilot for a reality show about a dog hotel. So instead <laughs> of... Yeah, that's, that's, that's how I felt when I woke up this morning is instead of, you know... I can't say a lot of things that people associate with the comedic life, but instead of like being hammered out on the Sunset Strip at two in the morning, I was wrangling dogs uh, and massaging them at a hotel for dogs, which is nicer than my apartment, uh, (laughs) for 10 hours and then coming home and passing out. Living the dream. We we need a documentary about your life, man. (laughs) How much blow do those dogs do? They do Amazing amount. There's that. Do you guys know who uh, Lemmy Kilmeister is? He's the singer for Motorhead. Yeah, with the giant mole. Yeah. yeah. If, if there's any children, plug your ears. And I'm sorry to mother already, but uh, they asked Lemmy when he was going to have his reality show, and he said, as soon as it's interesting to film a 40 year old man in his apartment playing video games. And Jeez. <laughs> Edit that out. I may have to, yes. Yeah, I was going to say, we got to have some kind of sound effect. Uh, remember, remember, Ryan, uh, Grubbs and I use this podcast to try to get jobs at Christian schools. Hey. <laughs> I didn't say you guys were doing it. I was, that's amazing. Oh, gosh. All hey, right, it's well, summer. It's summertime. When the living is easy. All it's right. Summer. Well, let's well, let's get into some some other discussions other than <laughs> the Motorhead lead singer, uh, David. I, I even though it's summer, I want to give you a chance to get medieval. I mean, one commonplace in <laughs> medieval and Renaissance studies is that the jester or the fool or the joker has some sort of free reign to insult the powerful in those contexts. Uh, I'll have to admit this is one of those places where I see an awful lot about it in criticism but relatively little in the text themselves. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that I'm wrong, as usual. Uh, I mean, talk a little bit about this. I mean, do you see this dynamic between the jester and the king uh, happening in actual medieval texts, uh, or is this mainly critics taking King Lear and extrapolating? And, you know, where else do you see this happening? Well, first I had to kind of rake my memory for... Uh, references to to jesters and fools because uh the 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 commonplace that you mentioned is the commonplace that that i'd uh i'd kind of picked up from reading uh medievalist uh uh, secondary literature but uh i don't remember a whole lot of jesters in medieval lit frankly you'd think they would show up in chivalric romance, and they well, do I was somewhat. You could prove me wrong, David. <laughs> uh, they do somewhat, uh, and and uh, I found uh, one uh, one example that I could rake up. There's a lot of uh, well, you gotta you gotta distinguish between um, three kinds of people made made uh, the medieval court laugh. Um, that was uh, those with. Uh, uh, Mental developmental issues, uh, who whom they would call fools, jesters who studied to be funny, and dwarfs. So, 
basically, uh, you know, people who were who were developmentally handicapped, uh, either in in mind or in body, or the people who worked very, very, very hard in order to become funny. Uh, the the medieval Ryan's apparently. I think you just described a modern comedy club almost exactly. <laughs> <laughs> also TLC. Yeah. Yeah, it's, oh, it's developmentally disabled people who work really hard and dwarves. <laughs> yeah, so apparently the medievals were exactly like us. That's um, the comedy store on a Saturday. <laughs> nice. Anyway, you see lots of dwarfs in medieval romances. Lots and lots of dwarfs. They aren't really being funny. They're just kind of being short. Um, a lot of times they're insolent. They're incredibly insolent. They'll insult uh, the heroes. They'll goad them into a fight. Um, and that may be uh, a picture of, of the function of the fool uh, as, a, uh, as a taunter, as, as someone who just kind of goes in there and, and brings up insults, which that, that seemed to be the one, uh, the one kind of reflex of the, the, sc- the scholarly commonplace in actual medieval lit. Um, you see it also in uh, the character of Unferth and Beowulf when uh, Beowulf comes in and Unferth insults him. Um, but these these insulting uh, jester types that you see in medieval lit aren't really there for comic relief. They're there f- to goad the hero who is usually modest into action to defend his reputation, hmm. uh, whether in action or in words, by impugning it. Um. And uh, I, I think there's there's some uh, uh, some signs of Sir Kay, who is uh, Arthur's uh, stepbrother in Mallory, but who is uh, a character in in other Arthurian romance. Sir Kay is also a taunter. He's an insulter, and very often his insults are setups for uh, a protagonist later heroism. And so maybe that's a bit of a uh, that medieval reality of the jester coming out but uh i i actually found an article nathan that was that was claiming that the the jester as truth teller to the man in power is us uh falling in love with shakespeare's fools and okay yeah i know it happens in shakespeare but i couldn't think of any medieval examples yeah. and you're kind of confirming that that in medieval times it's you know it's not for laughs it's to cut the hero down so that he has yep. to rise up again. Right. On the other hand, <laughs> on the other hand, I uh, found another book. Uh, this is, but both of these two streams are both going on currently. So we've got the one side that's saying, yeah, this is just falling in love with, with, with touchstone and the fool and Lear and projecting him backwards. Uh, the other side, uh, which is represented by a woman named, Oh, Barbara something or other. Um, in a book called, uh, sorry, not Barbara, Beatrice Otto, a book called Fools Everywhere, in which she argues that the court jester is a universal historic phenomena, that you find them in every court, in every period throughout the world. In fact, she found um, medieval Chinese books recording the things that jesters said. Hmm. And and apparently these were these were hugely popular, and a lot of them were on topical political subjects. Um, now I don't know the 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 thing where scholarship today might be a little 
over overplaying their hand is when they couple the notion of the fool or the natural, the the person who's uh, impersonating or actually is in some way uh, mentally development developmentally uh, uh, handicapped with that safety to speak to the power because uh, I, I, th I think they're kind of blending the, the social function of the satirist, which we see in, you know, we see that in classical lit. We, you know, we see satire everywhere um, with the notion of the fool as, as the idiot who somehow inadvertently speaks truth or whose a sort of natural wit is able to, uh, to, to speak truth, but in such a way that sounds like nonsense. All right. So um, Larry, the cable guy. Kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> um, in, anyway, the, I, I, I think I think a lot of stuff that's said about gestures is overplaying the hand, but there's still something there. But uh, just as often in in the historical stuff that I've found, you'll see the insults coming from the jester um, confirming the person who is in power as often as being directed at being directed at the person who's in power. So all right. Yeah. All right. Enough said. Well, well, moving forward a little bit, Michael, I want to get to some American things. I mean, I'll, the medieval roots are certainly there, but much of what we think about as live comedy has its roots in fairly modern settings, British music halls, American vaudeville stage acts. I know that folks like Mark Twain did stints in vaudeville. Uh, how would you characterize the relationships between vaudeville and American literature and Especially, I mean, focus a little bit on recent scholarship that spent so much time on minstrel shows as a subset of vaudeville. I mean, what is, uh, why are we focusing so heavily on that part of vaudeville these days? Uh, run with that where you will, Michael. Sure. Um, there is certainly a tradition of American literary humor that both influences and then owes an awful lot to vaudeville, right? And that, that tradition is obviously best represented by Twain and by uh, Washington Irving before him, you get these tall tales. They're basically just lies. Um, you get the, the dirty jokes that are masked by double entendres. You get the absurdity. You get the farce. And if you, if you think about Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, there's a series of scenes involving um, the Duke and the King, and they're flim-flam men, and they, sure. go town, they go town to town. They put on this burlesque Shakespearean show. Uh, I'm not an expert on vaudeville by any means, but that seems to me to be very much in the spirit of what vaudeville was eventually going to be. Um, the difference being that the townspeople who go to see the Duke and the King in that novel aren't aware that they're doing burlesque Shakespeare. They take it very seriously. So uh, obviously vaudeville audiences were going specifically to see humor, and they weren't up, they weren't upset by, by, by it not being um, legitimate theater. But vaudeville comes from more than American literary humor. It also incorporates elements from traveling medicine shows, which I think we all know from Looney Tunes cartoons. <laughs> so you'd get this huckster who went to town, from town to town on a wagon selling a variety of phony miracle cures, things like that, uh, tonics. And uh, with him, there'd be various entertainment acts to get the, the, the rubes to come to the show, right? So you get flea circuses, itself a scam, of course. Uh, magicians, you'd get formal comedians, things like that. And vaudeville takes that structure and just throws out the flim-flam man. So you get um, actually a little something like the, the show Ryan was a part of with magicians and singers and dancers and, uh, and, and comedians. 
And as you mentioned, we can't really talk about vaudeville or the history of the American comic theater without talking about blackface and minstrel shows. Um, I have to note that Mark Twain was himself an adorer of minstrel shows, which is why when people say of Huck Finn something along the lines of it's a profoundly anti-racism novel, I have to disagree and say that it's it's much more complicated than that. Uh, because he did love these minstrel shows. And, and those shows are basically just a series of stereotypes about African Americans, whether it's that they're lazy or stupid or obsequious or any number of other things. Uh, sometimes minstrel shows were performed by African Americans, but much more often they were performed by white people wearing blackface. You would, um, I believe you would burn the end of a cork and rub that on your face, and it would make you look like a cartoonish version of an African American. Um, the shows were fantastically popular well into the first few decades of the 20th century, and they didn't really go away until the Civil Rights Movement in the 60s. And our attitude has um, certainly and obviously changed a lot since then. Uh, Nathan, I am not familiar with the academic scholarship on minstrelsy, but I can point to an example in pop culture where you can re really see the way we look at it today. Uh, I don't watch the AMC show Mad Men. I know that makes me the only person in the entire world who doesn't like that show. I don't watch it either. <laughs> Uh, I, I just find it incredibly tiresome. Yeah, I don't watch it either. Hey, the Christian <laughs> Humanist Podcast is against Mad Men. Hey, can we make that a, can we make that an uh, ex cathedral pronouncement? Well, in, in my case, I've just never seen any of it, so we can't go ex cathedral. Yeah, let's wait on that. Oh well. Yeah, I just think that nothing happening is not synonymous with subtext. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there was an episode last season where the big boss at the advertising forum. Uh, firm uh, did blackface at a party and uh, it was supposed to show what a flaming bigot he was so 50 or 60 years ago we wouldn't have had that reaction so that that is if you, if you want to think of it this way a, a measure of how society has progressed along racial lines but minstrelsy and blackface have had just an enormous and undeniable impact on American culture I'm just going to give you a few examples here so Al Jolson um, really incredibly popular vaudeville entertainer and he, he started in the first talkie the first live action movie with synchronized sound um, he performed in blackface all the time, and his relationship with African-American culture is complicated. He he perpetuated, obviously, a lot of negative stereotypes, but he also introduced white audiences to African-American music, to the blues and to jazz. And on a personal and political level, he fought really hard against Broadway's discrimination against black people. So he's a complicated figure, and it's clear that in those days, using blackface didn't mean you hated black people. It's it's not It's not simple. And then an even more famous example that people don't think about is Mickey Mouse, who borrows yeah. a lot of mannerisms and tropes from minstrel shows. His face looks like he's wearing, it looks a lot like the, the kind of blackface entertainment. Um, and in his earliest shorts, he, he really did um, borrow a lot of, of tropes from minstrel shows. So, you know, he's perpetually singing, he's drinking. If you've never seen those early Mickey Mouse shorts, he actually drinks quite a bit. Uh, he gets into scrapes because of his naivete and his stupidity. And Disney actually continued to use stereotypes about African Americans well into the 60s. So if you think about the scene with the crows near the end of Dumbo, uh, the uh, the number mm -hmm. I've... I, when I see an elephant fly, I don't yep. think we need to do the voices to remind people what that what that was. <laughs> or uh, the apes in the Jungle Book. These, these kind of jazz-loving subhumans who who just party all day but are, are really secretly sinister. Um, and you, want to be like us. That's right. They 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 want to they want to be a man, but they're 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 not men. They're they're something close. Those are uh, very very obvious stereotypes about African Americans. And I I've been meaning for some time to write a paper on Baloo the Bear as hipster, 
as white hipster because he's coded as white, right? He has a white voice and he hangs out with the other characters who are coded white. But he um he listens, to, he loves the jazz music, he dances in the in the monkey's lair and he just sleeps all day and uh sleeps all day and listens to jazz music. He sounds like a hipster from the 50s to me. But anyway, you can see from those examples how the minstrel show outlives Broadway and uh the outlives uh, vaudeville rather. There you and, go. Uh, the stereotypes are always played for laughs. Hmm. Well, Ryan, I I know that you've done. I mean, in your own reading, a fair bit of reading about the about 20th century American comedy groups like Saturday Night Live. You've actually been right. involved with Improv Olympic and I believe Second City, on some level, right? Yeah, I mean, not uh, just classes, and then uh, you know the yeah, the very very lightly. Well, what, what do you see? Uh, I mean. Describe for us, I mean, their role in the development of stage comedy and television comedy and those sorts of things. Well, there's uh, before you, you kind of have to understand the priming of the pump before modern comedy happened was uh, Lenny Bruce. For those of you that uh, don't know Lenny Bruce, he was actually a vaudeville comedian. He did um, Jimmy Durante impressions was actually his his act. And then um, he sort of the the legend is I'm not sure how much of this is true I, I'm sure is a good amount of its legend but as part of like a nervous breakdown he just started doing modern observational humor um, at vaudeville shows which got him arrested you know and uh, for his language and things like that and he was sort of the spark of modern comedy kind of like in, in a weird way he's he would be kind of like Carl Perkins for Elvis, um, the setup man for modern comedy. So after Lenny Bruce, you have basically the end of presentational style comedy. Because um, cause vaudeville is very, very presentational. People coming out and um, very actorly and very... Um, it's not very personal when you do vaudeville. It's definitely a projected show. A performance but comedy got a lot more personal with Lenny Bruce where he came out and talked about his own problems you know talked about language talked about things that he personally believed in and he was the first in a lot of ways he was the first person to come on stage as Lenny Bruce instead of coming on as you know uh for I mean Al Jolson is the top paid vaudeville performer of all time and he used to come out he had a cast of characters that he would play um so it was never you're watching Al Jolson you're watching the character that Al Jolson is doing um from there um most people consider Richard Pryor to be kind of if Lenny Bruce was the set Richard Pryor was the spike where most people consider Richard Pryor to be the first person to kind of figure out how this stuff works and implement it perfectly. Mm -hmm. uh, I suppose he's the first saint of comedy. See what I did there? <laughs> I'm putting it, I'm putting it in your language. Um, <laughs> Richard Pryor did his thing. Um, and, and around this time, um, there were a lot of sort of storefront theater groups, very, very small theater groups, one of which was the Second City, which is around 50 years old now, actually. Hmm. Um, and they are known for doing local Chicago satire. 
And they are also known for using improvisation, which is, you know, going up without any type of script in order to produce material. I have to say, uh, I saw Second City once when I was visiting Chicago, and it is the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's not bad. They're really good at what they do. And um, I'm trying to think of kind of the 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 effect from there. National Lampoon kind of blew up at the same time. It's a really complicated history because a lot of things blew up around the same time, which has, I think, more to do with the hippie movement than anything within comedy, where people were just more willing to do anything. And it became acceptable to do things for the sake of art instead of for the sake of entertainment. So people were producing art. National Lampoon blew up at the same time. And then uh, NBC had the idea to sort of drain the talent from those two pools, Second City uh, in Chicago and National Lampoon, which is at uh, Harvard, and make a television show out of that. And that's what Saturday Night Live basically became at that point, which is a brain drain from these alternative comedy scenes. Okay. Hmm. Does that help? <laughs> yeah, I think it does. I think it does. Uh, well, Michael, I mean, on that same topic, I mean, we've talked about about this already, or Ryan has, but I mean, stage comedy as we know it uh, undergoes significant changes as reliable indoor stage lighting, radio, television, and most recently, internet have changed the means by which people consume this sort of entertainment. Uh, I mean, what kinds of things? I mean, change which which of these technological innovations do you see as most significant uh how what shape does comedy take on as it enters into new media yeah uh one thing i think that changed a lot with radio and television is that were things you suddenly couldn't say although the difference between what you could say in person (laughs) and on the air has grown greater over the years actually so george carlin has that famous bit seven words you can never say on television and i will let our listeners go find that routine to learn what those seven words are because there are also seven words you can't say on the Christian Humanist podcast, <laughs> as it turns out. <laughs> but uh, he found out Amazing. that you he found out you can't you can not only not say those words on television, you can't say them off television either. Because he got arrested for obscenity and disturbing the peace after a concert where he did that routine in Wisconsin, and that was in 1972. So obviously, those sort of obscenity laws either no longer exist or are no longer enforced. But you still can't say five or six of those words on broadcast television or radio. And I I should mention that cable television and satellite radio aren't governed by the FCC, and so they're not subject to those censorship laws, which is why a show like South Park can use unobscured profanity of a sort that you'd never, ever hear on CBS. Any censorship you see on a cable station is entirely self-enforced. This includes basic cable. There's nothing nothing keeping A&E from showing hardcore pornography essentially there's no there's no law what keeps them from doing it is they don't want to offend its audience and and lose their their advertisers so i know we're going to talk more about blue comedy in a moment so i'll leave that alone for now um besides the answer issue of censorship i'd say that radio and television in particular make comedy more sophisticated technologically so um Actually, the increased technological sophistication, I think, can lead to a decreased sophistication in terms of craft, and I'll give you an example. We've all, um, we've all listened to morning radio from time to time, right? We all, know, we all know morning radio tropes. So there's the trope of the zoo crew, right? The zoo crew makes idiotic prank phone calls, and they, they drop these cliched sound effects into the mix, and, and that's something that wouldn't have been possible in the days of vaudeville. 
but it's just mm-hmm. you know it's led to a new series of cliches, a new way to be new ways to be lazy in your comedy. And I think there's a degree to which new technology always leads to new cliches. And I, I don't mean to suggest that comedy hasn't always relied on cliches. It's just that there's much more opportunity for them now. And I'd argue that sketch comedy, you were talking about Second City and Saturday Night Live, sketch comedy gets into trouble the more it gets codified in broadcasts um, also. Because something like Second City is consistently funny because most of its audience members only see it a few times a year. So every time they go, it seems fresh. But Saturday Night Live, uh, which, as you mentioned, gets many of its members from Second City, seems tired because it reuses so many of the same sketches. But I think the real issue there is probably just that we're aware that it's reusing those sketches. And yeah, we, wouldn't be, we wouldn't be aware yeah. if we couldn't watch it every week. If, R- if I Ryan, can chime uh, in real quick. Yeah, go ahead. Thing, uh, uh, first of all, the zoo crew thing, just as a funny tidbit, one of the things we were talking about comedians waking up so early and working so hard and being tired all the time. One of the things that a lot of people in Chicago, I think I know five of them, are professional prank call recipients um in chicago so <laughs> you can't you can't actually prank call somebody and record it that's insanely illegal so <laughs> people s- wake up at like five in the morning and they're like hey uh you're a dude at a shoe store uh act like you want to fight us it's actually only illegal in some states you can um oh, you, is can, that true? you can record from uh nevada i believe because that show crank yankers uh they had to go to uh Las Vegas to uh, to to record. You you can record uh, with the consent of one party in Nevada and I think a few other states. Uh, but maybe uh, not in Illinois. But in most uh, states, it's basically like professional wrestling, is what you're saying, Ryan. In a lot of ways, yeah. I mean, I'll never enjoy the zoo crew again. <laughs> yeah, it's you don't want to know how your sausages are made. Trust me. Uh, and then the other thing I I forgot I should have mentioned. It's really important to note that. Uh, the the brain drain of alternative comedy is now coming off the internet. Uh, when, I, I, when was, I, was, I was just about to talk about that. Okay, cool. When I was in Chicago, um, was the first year that SNL hired the Lonely Island. Uh-huh. If you know who they are, the, it's Andy Samberg, uh, Jorma. So it's three guys who were doing videos in Los Angeles and just posting them directly to the internet and basically entirely bypassing all of the alternative stages. And those three guys, from my understanding, from people that I know uh, over at SNL, they're basically the go-to people now. Well, and what's interesting, I've watched, I've watched every episode of SNL for the past 10 years, I think. I haven't, I haven't missed a single one. So uh, what's interesting is when they first joined in 2004, 2005, maybe it was 2005, 2006, I don't know, um, that show got really revitalized for a few months because of that lazy Sunday short about smoking yeah. weed and watching Chronicles of Narnia, right? And then the, yeah. the follow-up, <laughs> which we will not mention the name of. Yeah. Um, so that those became big-time sensations on YouTube, and all of a sudden the show was vital again, and then if you watch it now, uh, those, those, sh- those uh, videos are uh, boring again because, again, they've created their own set of cliches that they're now following. You know Andy Samberg is going to rap something in a stupid voice and have a have a problem. Right. I mean, that, that's 90% of those shorts. Yeah, the, basically. The other thing the internet does, I think, is it brings um, an, an interactive function to comedy. I think we've all seen a shot-for-shot remake of a video that originally appeared on SNL, right? There's probably 50 shot-for-shot remakes of Lazy Sunday. Yeah, for sure. 
And uh, I don't find that sort of interaction be particularly interesting or effective, but obviously somebody does. And I think that's a new thing that the Internet brings. <laughs> it, yeah. it basically allows you to be a comedian outside of your water cooler. I mean, people are always doing recreations of SNL sketches at work, right? Everybody, you know, in the, in the early <laughs> right. 90s, everybody was doing Dana Carvey's George Bush. The I difference still do is, Dana Carvey's George Bush. What's yeah. that? I said I still do Dana Carvey's George Bush. The difference is you don't you don't think you're clever enough to be broadcast to the world. So uh, it, it appears to me that the internet leads to a new level of narcissism on the part of the comedy fan. And and finally, the other thing I think the internet does is what it's done for every other arena of human interaction. It's pulled back the curtain. And again, I'll give you an example. Um, comedians have been stealing jokes ever since comedy was first invented, right, Ryan? You've stolen jokes. Yeah, is this uh, is this the Patton Oswalt thing? Is that what? I, I was going to go Dane Cook and Louis C.K. Oh yeah, yeah, I was yeah, thinking George Lopez and Carlos Mencia. So y yeah, or Joe Rogan <laughs> and Carlos Mencia. Yeah, All right, I think go you ahead, need Ned, Ned Holness, not uh, not Carlos yeah, Mencia. So the internet has uh, has so much information and it's disseminated through so many places that you can't keep things like joke stealing a secret. So if you go to YouTube, and I recommend you do, and type in Louis C.K., C.K. like the letters, and uh, Dane Cook, you'll get a series of videos that demonstrates the extent to which Cook steals jokes from Louis C.K. So the internet has made it more possible to spot a hack, and Dane Cook is a hack. The, the interesting <laughs> thing to me is that people seem to know he's a hack and don't care. They still make him a multimillionaire, but... Um, yeah, I mean, Carlos Mencia is the worst one, I, and I don't know if I can get thrown out of the brotherhood for mentioning this, but there is actually a hand signal for when he's in the room, uh, a hand signal no to kid. get to the person on stage to not do new material when he's in the room. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Wow. <laughs> how, how hard up do you have to be to steal from uh, George Lopez and Joe Rogan, by the way? How, how out of ideas? Joe Rogan's great. Oh. That, guy, that guy is a treat. Whatever you say. I had heard that story, and I mean, Ryan, I you know, you're part of the scene. You can confirm this or deny it, but I mean, was there actually a physical altercation between Lopez and Mencia at one point? No, no, it's Joe Rogan. It's it's actually all online. It, it was uh, what happened was Rogan was introduced. He was hosting at the Comedy Store, and Carlos Mencia popped in. And if if like a celebrity comes in, they just go up to the owner like, "Hey, I want to do ten minutes," and they bump whoever the regular comedian is like they just they, they take their time because they're a celebrity and sure. uh uh joe rogan's opening act is a guy by the name of ari shafir and he had and carlos mencia just blatantly steals from ari shafir constantly um things like the joke about you know, they want to build a 15 foot wall on the border to keep all the immigrants out. And it's like, well, who do they, who are they going to get to build it if they kick all the illegals out? Sure. Uh, sure. Just jokes like that. And Rogan introduced him as, you know, a thief. They're like, Hey, you have to give time to Carlos Menci and he hates the guy. And, uh, he's like, yeah, this guy, you know, he's a thief. He steals jokes, blah, blah, blah. Give it up for Carlos Mencia. And, uh, Carlos Mencia was like, uh, got on the mic and basically said, why don't you say that to my face? Which Joe Rogan is a mixed martial artist. Yeah, he's a scary <laughs> guy. Uh, he's, yeah. he's, but Joe Rogan is three times bigger than you think he is when you meet him in person. He's a very, very strong, intimidating person. So he did. He hopped up on stage and uh, basically called him on it. It became a YouTube hit and Joe Rogan got fired from the comedy store for good. 
Uh, It does make you like Joe Rogan more. I don't think he's terribly funny, but I I kind of respect him more for that. He's the nicest dude, and I don't want to, you know, be that guy that drops names, but he really is. He's really, really good, dude. Well, dude, you're a guest host. You're allowed to. (laughs) He's a... He's really an advocate for up and coming people. He makes sure that that the younger guys get taken care of and all that. So I really like Joe Rogan. Uh, and uh, who else? You know, th- there's a lot of people that are kind of known for stealing, and you can accidentally steal. Dennis Leary. Did, yeah, we, Dennis, we have to talk about Dennis Leary and Bill Hicks, the right? Rumor, the rumor about Dennis Leary. Do you have you guys heard of Bill Hicks? Do you know who Bill Hicks is? Yeah. He's he's a really influential uh, comedian who kind of invented the mold that Jon Stewart perfected. He invented that mold, but he passed away very, very young. Of He got cancer and passed away days after his first Letterman appearance. I believe he was in his 30s. And the rumor is that Dennis Leary stole his persona. Because Dennis Leary is playing a character when he's on stage. He's actually a a college-educated master's degree, used to be a professor of creative writing, that whole thing. And I don't know if any of this is true. I've never met Dennis Leary. He seems like an all right guy to me. But the rumor is that he saw, oh, I need to think of something that's more interesting than who I am. I am going to become Dennis Leary, the intellectual angry person, which was the void that was left when Bill Hicks passed away. Okay. So there's a lot of people and it's the the vitriol towards him is not nearly as much as it is towards like Mencia and people like that. Which I would argue is because Dennis Leary if he if he stole from Bill Hicks, he did it before the internet. And do you know what he didn't steal verbatim his jokes, he just plugged he created a persona based off of Bill Hicks. He didn't take Bill Hicks jokes and say them word for word he just said i need to be somebody more interesting than dennis leary the creative writing professor i'm going to become this angry intellectual and honestly i i I don't think he stole uh bill hicks didn't have like a rapid fire approach he wasn't as he was very angry but it was a very calm anger and bill hicks persona was actually much more of an intellectual than than leary is i think yeah absolutely i i think that that's a very very iffy uh it's a very iffy connection but you know it's comics you can't expect them to be emotionally intelligent Um, (laughs) they're just shadow boxing out there i mean it sounds like a useful distinction to me i mean i i I know that that that's that's general anybody who's ever thought they were funny learned how to be funny by imit- imitating the people they thought they were f- that were funny absolutely and so I, I i don't i don't see that that kind of that kind of imi- imitation of style but then hopefully you, you eventually become your own flavor yeah and i think he did in a lot of ways but i also think that bill hicks is a a patron saint of intellectual angry comedians. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's almost holy ground to do anything that even seems like it's disrespectful to Bill Hicks. Okay. It's There's kind a of new a- movie in case people are interested that's that's about to come out about I think it's maybe just called the Bill Hicks story. I don't remember. But keep an eye out for that. He is a, he is a treasure. 
See, I'm more angry. At, I, I don't mind Dennis Leary doing that. The one that makes me angry is actually Larry the Cable Guy. I, I know that we mentioned that <laughs> in passing, but that's <laughs> I mean, that is, I, I describe it as hillbilly blackface. Like, yes. he is a, he's a private school educated master's degree holder from Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Not that there aren't rednecks in Nebraska, speaking as someone who lived there. Oh, no, no. I, I mean, I think Nebraska <laughs> has the capacity. It's just not that guy. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, as opposed to someone like Jeff Foxworthy, who who comes to it honest. Yes. Yeah, and you know what? Jeff Foxworthy's great, too. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't mumble this guttural nonsense. Well, get her done isn't a joke, right? I think it was Ron White who said, get her done is Latin for insert joke here. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I I don't know. I mean, I I don't want to bag on somebody because in in very real terms, he made a decision which made him incredibly successful. So, I mean, I can see, I can see why he would do that. You know what I mean? Says the guy who played a talking horse. Yeah, exactly. But I didn't yeah. do interviews as the talking horse. Uh, when I, if there was a Comedy Central roast, I wouldn't have been Mr. Gallops. Hopefully. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, if if I could, I mean, you could compare it. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a very self conscious character, but I, and you could compare it to blackface. Um, because it, it is he, you know, Larry the Cable Guy is kind of an animate series of stereotypes, but right. for the most part, the people who love him are the people who would be the brunt of those stereotypes. Yeah, right. I, I and, agree. And, and well, I, I, far more negative. <laughs> yeah, I, I would compare. I would compare that with. Uh, well, this is you know the David Spade sketch on SNL, the 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 dirt balls and burnouts convention. When he's right. in that that kind of Joe Dirt character, and you know they're all in wife beaters, and it's this you know this series of you know you know I don't know bucolic losers, um, which that kind of made me angry because I'm Southern, and while I sound like this, uh, my uncles you know live on farms and are you know, dirt track racers. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of thing offends me in the way Larry the Cable Guy doesn't, even but, if Labor, Larry the Cable Guy is just as studied. But it right. takes, a, it takes a, a smart comedian to play with stereotypes and not have it, not have it come off as, as, as uh, attacking or pandering. You think of yeah. someone like Dave Chappelle, who, who I think is absolutely a genius... Can can do very very broad racial stuff that's nonetheless very incisive and cutting. Mm. Right, I think Dave Chappelle's probably actually the best working comedian alive right now. He really is, and a lot of people write him off because so much of what he does is racial. And mm. uh, but it's smart there's, racial. There, there's a subset of comedy uh, which they call urban. Uh, <laughs> As to not call it black comedy, which, uh, you know, the joke is, that's funny because you never see them in Urban Outfitters. Um, But but Urban, uh, when you go to an Urban comedy club, and I have several friends that that succeed in in the Urban arena and they succeed in 
um, you know, sort of the mainstream comedy arena. But when you go to an urban comedy club, it's certainly not uh, Dave Chappelle's style humor. I think he gets pigeonholed as that a lot when he actually is operating probably better than anybody else. And he's also, what's interesting is uh, there's, there's certain comedians that are known as sort of tacticians, sort of really, really tactical comedians, which would be like your Jerry Seinfeld or your George Carlin, uh, people like that who know exactly every gesture that they're going to do on stage. Um, and then there's other comedians that, do not prepare extensively. And Dave Chappelle is the best comedian that doesn't prepare extensively. Oh, and you can tell it, he doesn't. I mean, that, that's one of the things that really amazes me. I mean, he really is a smart comic, but his delivery is so inconsistent. I mean, there's times yeah, when it, I think, boy, I wish somebody else had delivered that joke. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he can get on stage. Dave Chappelle will show up at like the, the comedy store or something and just take the mic and go for four hours without any preparation and you can tell when he's uh -huh. hitting some scripted material in there but most of it isn't uh -huh. he also well, had the best answer on uh inside the actor studio i ever heard he asked him uh he asked him what if if heaven exists what he wants to hear god say when he arrives and he said congratulations bill you're a law <laughs> i thought yeah all right <laughs> That pretty much summed it up. Little, little yeah, Schoolhouse that, Rock reference. All right. That's Schoolhouse good. Rock and Play-Doh, actually. I thought that was a smart answer. <laughs> that's All good. right. Well, I'm looking at time where we're heading towards the end of our show. Uh, David, I want to get back to you, and I want to talk Renaissance for just a few more minutes here. Yes. Uh, one of the things, especially when we talk about folks like Ben Johnson, uh, who is sort of the, the paradigmatic renaissance comedy playwright next to shakespeare I, I would say some of his stuff is actually better than shakespeare's but that's another debate but one of the things that people always talk about with him is that what makes his comedy compelling and what makes it better than restoration comedy in a lot of ways uh is that it's got a compelling moral center to it in other words uh he makes fun of people not because they are easy targets uh but because they need to be cut down uh one of the things that, you know, Ryan often gives me grief about, and I'm sure I'm going to hear it, uh, is that I don't have much of a stomach uh, for what I call mean-spirited comedy. Uh, David, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll toss it out to everyone, but David, I want you to start off. I mean, do you think there's any real intelligible <laughs> distinction uh, between the sort of amoral comedy and something like Ben Johnson with a moral center, uh, or am I just a prude? Oi, uh, you know the Renaissance comedy is way better than I do, Nate. Um, I, I'm much more of a of a tragedy guy. Um, well, the tragedies and romances, like The Tempest. Um, but I mean, for, first, I, I think if 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 everything is truly absurd, nothing can be funny. Um, if you know, words like uh, words like absurdity, words like incongruity, presuppose a congruous. Um, so I I, I think uh, you know absurdity for its own sake, um, insulting for its own sake. Uh, I, I, to me, it 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 seem it seems easier 
when uh, when I'm watching somebody doing political comedy and they just sort of poke you know poke fun at the easy mannerisms of someone um, versus a substantive joke against something a political you know figure actually did um, you know to to me the, the the substantive thing about actual uh, actual policy or whatever you know that that's always funnier to me um but i would distinguish between amoral and mean-spirited okay um, i i i don't th- i think you can be mean without being amoral um you know the the more acid roman satirists uh are i th- i think a, a lot of them very very moral and that's one of the reasons why they're so acid um i think ron white is mean as a snake but uh you know some of the his stuff that I think is funniest is uh, uh well I I think there's a moral in it and and it's kind of magnificent when he he sort of unleashes that venom and gets into this kind of you know holy tirade with this glitter in his eyes and a shot glass um you know I kind of kind of love it but ah. I'm struggling with this because I don't know stand-up nearly as well as any of you guys, it seems. So I'm, I'm having a hard time coming up with examples of what I, what I do like and what I don't like. Someone well, like um, Ryan. Deter- I'm sorry, Michael. Ryan, to turn it to you for a second. I mean, yeah. this is a conversation we've had about Mencia, about how he seems to be hung up on picking the easy targets. And I realize oh, yeah, he's been a target we- this whole hour or so. I guess he joins Zemeckis as Beowulf as our easy target, but go ahead. I mean, talk yeah, a little I, bit about it and see I mean, it, and we'll kick it back to Farmer. I can remember we were uh, after a, a show in Chicago. We were um, we were over at a bar watching, and the TV was on. There was an ad for Mind of Mencia, and his old tagline for his show was "Somebody had to say it." Uh, which, by the way, don't uh, if you ever do a tagline for a show, don't choose anything that's easily negated. Um, but he had a, the ad was like a, a an overweight woman sitting at a bar and he's just like, man, look at how big her butt is. And then the tagline was someone had to say it. <laughs> <laughs> My friend Chris McAvoy, who's a comic in Chicago, was like. Yeah, it's about time somebody brought fatties down a notch. Yeah. <laughs> Get them off their high horse. Um, all all those like, all those like, arrogant, pompous, fat people. I know, just, re- just trying to get their rights and everything. Um, it's the same reason, I think, when uh, when uh, the, the being mean to people who... Uh, basically, I think Craig Ferguson, who was <laughs> a comic before he became the, the stand-up host, he said comedy should be fired from the bottom up not from the top down yeah when he, he was actually asked why he wasn't doing britney spears jokes when she had that nervous breakdown and that was his answer is she's already on the bottom like we should be firing up not firing down he had and, that uh, incredible monologue where he talked for 15 minutes about how we need to try to get her help because and he told his story about how he almost killed himself on christmas yeah, day it, like she needs help. She doesn't need that's why would you make fun of somebody that clearly needs help? And part of the problem is that that person needs privacy, you know, whereas you have somebody and, you know, I think that people had a field day with with Sarah Palin 
to the point where there's a term with the Sarah Palin winking syndrome where it's like, I can't make that any more stupid than it is. Like if something already like she winked at the audience, like you can't write a joke about that. You know, I, and mean for me, sick. I, I totally agree. It, it doesn't work necessarily, which is why, you know, Johnny Knoxville did the comedy about the Special Olympics, and nobody, nobody wants to take a shot at the Special Olympics because that's one of the most fantastic organizations on earth. You know. Mm-hmm. What do you think about Sarah Silverman, Ryan? Um, I, I don't know. Like, uh, first of all, Sarah Silver, I'm going to get fired from every comedy job after this. <laughs> Nobody's going to listen to this. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> you overestimate our listenership. <laughs> Christian University after this. Um, but, uh, Sarah Silverman has spawned over a billion hot girls who say dirty things at comedy clubs. Like, that has become its own thing. Like, you see an attractive young lady who is very mousy get up on stage. It's like, oh, she's going to say something incredibly dirty. Like, you can call it before it happens now. And I think, sir, you know, it's just... I I personally don't like it. If people like it, I'm not going to bag on people's taste. But it's just... Mm. It makes me tired to watch. Yeah. Well, the, it was the incongruity that made it funny, but once she's established at a, it as a thing, it's not incongruous anymore. It's totally congruous. It's congruous with the kind of thing that it is. You know, it, it was only funny when, you know, there wasn't another like it. I yeah, and you know, I think her show, she has good people on her show, really talented writers and all of that stuff, and I think that she's really, really talented, but... I mean, I would be curious to ask her honestly if she thinks that it has gotten played out or not. Whether or not she feels forced to keep on doing what she's doing. Because I have Sarah Silverman around town, and when she's on stage, it's, it's, she's a really, really funny, really, really smart person. But it's, it's, I feel like, in a way, and God, I, I hope this doesn't affect any job prospects, but I feel like the same way with Chris Farley, if you guys don't know the the Chris Farley story is he was, when he was in Chicago, he was a Second City I.O. dude, what he was known for was having like a freakish memory, playing really, really grounded, sensitive characters, and then when he got to SNL, they were like, hey, a fat guy, why don't you dance, fat guy, fall down, fat guy, and uh, accusation is, is that's what led to a lot of the depression that ultimately ended his life is that he wasn't allowed to do his own thing he was getting development notes that pigeonholed him into being the fat guy that falls down whereas that isn't what he had done his entire career he basically gotten his stripes from being an intelligent comic but as soon as he got to the point where there were millions of dollars behind him they wanted him to be the fat guy that falls down which is why, you know, that's why Chappelle walked away from his show, yeah. is he, the, the deal that Chappelle and Levi made with Comedy Central was they took a really, really small paycheck relative to the amount of work that they were doing. They were the only two writers on the show. They wrote everything. And the deal was, we are going to take a small amount of money if you leave us alone. And they had the situation where they just turned in a tape every week 
none of that stuff. But as soon as Chappelle cut the deal for $50 million, then people started showing up and telling him what he had to do on his own show, which is why he walked. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised if Sarah Silverman isn't the reason that the Sarah Silverman program is so repetitive. It's, it's now, it's gone. They, they canceled it last week. Yeah, it was a weird deal anyway. It was like half for financing. It was a really weird deal. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Shoot. Um, the celebrity roast. Yeah. Um, My favorite thing um, ever, by the way. Okay. The, I mean, we, we, we've talked about meanness and insult, but I mean, that's a particular branch of, of, you know, stand up live performance comedy. That's nothing but meanness, but it's intentional. Right. And the target is there and it's for their benefit. I mean, how, how does that work? Uh, in in what sense? How does it work? Well, I, 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 I mean, how, how does that how does that fit in with what we're saying about about meanness and moral? And I mean, what? You know, what? I, I think meanness is funny. Uh, Nathan and I disagree <laughs> about this. I mean, I I think well executed meanness uh, is is pretty funny. I don't think it's meanness for the sake of being mean. Um, First of all, when when you roast a celebrity, I mean, if you think about the Comedy Central roasts, it's like Pam Anderson. Like Pam Anderson does need, if somebody insults this woman who has elevated herself to that level, mm. you know, you can take shots at that. Like like Bob Saget clearly has a sense of humor, and he he's Bob Saget, so he just <laughs> has to make his career off. Tearing other people down, so to flip it on its ear is, mm. is bad. you know what? And they did like Flava Flav. Like if there's anybody on Earth, <laughs> who, you know, I mean, the the guy self-elected himself a celebrity and orchestrated <laughs> this big thing. Like Flava Flav can be torn down a little bit, and I think that's fine. Generally, it's either people that deserve it or people that can take it. Yeah, and it's all in good fun, too. They tell them at the end of the, the set how, how much they love them, and they usually tell a nice story, too. Yeah. Mm. I like those roasts. I do, too. I think they're funny. Well, I, I, I was thinking about those uh, when I was reading the stuff about jesters and about taunters. And the one of the role of the taunter is to show that the hero is strong because he can take it. Right. And uh, the... Yeah. Okay. I, I'm I'm glad to know that I, I'm I'm not making things up to make them seem more medieval. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, you know what's funny? The the people that academically study improv always go back to, and, and I don't know how to pronounce it. If it's if it's Italian, I believe it's commedia, mm -hmm. uh, which was traveling shows in medieval times where they would the day of the performance, they would write something local about like a local saint or uh, a local legend, something like that. And a lot of, uh, you know, people that think too much about comedy uh, mm. will be like, oh, we have our roots in traveling medieval moral plays. Uh, so it does, I mean, there's medieval times do come up in the conversation when discuss discussing the origins of modern standup. <sighs> that was a happy sigh. Was it good? <laughs> well, Ryan, we're we're definitely coming up hard on time here. 
Uh, I'm going to let you start us out for our last discussion. I mean, we are three college English teachers. Uh, you actually do this stuff for a paycheck on occasion. Uh, you're finishing up your master's in screenwriting at USC. Uh, you, you've got a, a podcast full of Dr. Jesus types, and you can explain that term <laughs> if you want to. Uh, yeah. What would you leave us with? I mean, what do we need to get right about comedy? What do we get wrong? More importantly, what? which one of us is the funniest? <laughs> I, you know, I can't answer that. Uh, <laughs> Nathan, by far. Um, <laughs> that was for you, I Mom. Did, uh, when when uh, we, my grandmother who passed away this, or I should say our, because Nathan's on this podcast, but our grandmother who passed away this summer was you know when she was really really smart and really really funny and she was actually very very biting in what she said and i think she was joking you never really know which is kind of a trope of my comedy. i never thought she was joking i <laughs> i think she was i think she's smart uh when i graduated from high school she pulled me aside we were having like a little uh reception or whatever for my graduation she pulled me aside and she said uh, don't worry that Nathan's so much smarter than you because you got all the personality. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's what a, you a need glimpse to into our family, yeah. folks. <laughs> Which is, you know, that's who funny. knows? Um, what people need to know about comedy? Um, I I don't know. I, I can I change it to the entertainment industry? This is something that you might sure. find in. There are people saying that the studio system and the independent film system is about to go away the same way that the music industry did in the 2000s. For those of you uh, who don't know, the, the music industry died in the 2000s. And basically what happened is technology got to the point where you didn't need a record company anymore. You didn't need all this money because home recording had gotten to the point where you didn't need to ask anybody for money to make an album. You just had to buy a Mac with uh, Pro Tools on it, and you could make an album that was good enough to play on the radio. You could make music that sounded good enough for the radio from your house. Right, and three and, college English teachers can do talk radio. Yeah, exactly, and there are... <laughs> A lot of people that are very, very nervous in the the film world right now. I know that Disney's cutting from 12 movies a year to six in anticipation of this. And they think that camera technology is going to get to the point that the studio system is no longer needed. There's already been a couple of films that were filmed entirely independent of anything that looked good enough to be put in theaters, one of which was the comedy Hump Day. Uh, and one of which was the horror film Paranormal Activity. But I think in the future, people are going to be able to do their own comedy without any type of permission from anybody. And I think that we're sort of seeing the first wave of the next set, the next realm of entertainment, basically film entertainment. And nobody knows what's going to happen. So if there's anybody out there that's kind of thinking that maybe comedy is for them that wants to get started on it. I think right now is the best time to be studying the craft and getting everything together to see what happens hmm. as soon as camera technology gets to the point that we don't need those people anymore. Hmm. 
Um, yeah, and that's it. That's what I want to leave with. All right. Well, guys, I, I think it's been a good episode. Uh, I want to thank Ryan for coming on uh, early in the morning out in L.A. But Yeah, uh, I got to go we, to work here in an hour. Yeah, I got to. <laughs> uh, and also to Michael and David. All right, very good. Uh, if you want to subscribe to our podcast, uh, you can go to iTunes and search for Christian Humanist. Or you can go to the website www.christianhumanist.org. There at that website, you can also read our blog. If you'd like to email the show with any questions, any comments, any feedback, uh, any ideas for Ryan's further comedy, uh, you can do so at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. And that's about all we've got for today. So on behalf of Michael Farmer, on behalf of David Grubbs, and on behalf of my little brother Ryan, this is Nathan Gilmore saying, don't drive like my brother. Don't drive like my brother. <laughs> Let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger. Stronger.